0: Today we're reading in the book of Mark chapter 13 verses 14 through 23 in the blue Bibles on the back of the chairs. That's page 496. If you don't have a Bible of your own and you'd like one, you are, feel free to take one of these home. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. such tribulation as he has, as has not been from the beginning of the creation <clears throat> that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then <clears throat> if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Thus says God's word.
1: Well, Let's pray again, shall we? Father, thank you so much for your word, the gift of your word, the the clarity and and the sufficiency of your word. Lord, I I pray that you would just help us to, um, Lord, let our lives be be guided, formed, shaped, governed by your word, Lord. And uh, so, Lord, we we thank you um, that you are, Lord, the the just um, still reigning over your word sending it out where you want lord and so we we thank you for that and and it accomplishes what you uh desire and so lord we pray that it would happen that way in us today lord i pray for myself that you would just help me to speak with clarity and accuracy as I handle your word, Lord. I pray that um, that people would be able to hear uh God the heart of Christ in these passages as we study them together. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, you can be seated. If if there, there's a couple of things I want to let you know about, uh one in particular. Uh, we uh, we've been doing this now. This will be our third time, and we we've been meeting um, about twice a month on uh, Sunday afternoons to have further discussion. It kind of serves as a little small group, and we would love it if you guys would join us for that this afternoon. What we do is when church is over, we give you about 45 minutes or so, we start right at 12.15, and then we go through just some questions, usually based in the sermon or, or a topic that gets opened up from the sermon. And so the, the conversation has been really lively. This is not another sermon or another lecture. It's a, it's a back-and-forth uh, and interactive thing. So if, if you guys will join us for that, we would love to have you. So like I said, that'll start this afternoon at 1215. You can run and grab something, some fast food joint or something and bring it back and, and eat with us uh, and we'll do that together. So wanted to let you know about that and um, uh, and uh, it's time to get into the words. So uh, over the last two weeks, for those of you that have been here, you know we've been working our way through the Olivet Discourse. Um, this. Is the conversation that Jesus had with his four of his disciples in particular over the comments that he had made as they were exiting the temple um, right before his crucifixion? This probably was Wednesday and maybe uh, Thursday night um, when when this happened uh, this conversation, um, but anyway he in verse two you 'll remember that Jesus had prophesied. The utter destruction of the Jewish temple. Now, why is that significant? Because as we've talked about at length, the temple was more than just a building. It was more than like, as this is a church building, it was far more significant than that. It was the epicenter of their religious, ceremonial, political life of the Jews at that time. And Jesus makes this shocking prediction that it is going to be leveled. Just the literal foundations will be pulled up. And this shocking prediction prompted four of Jesus' disciples to ask two follow-up questions to this prediction. Once they had left the city, they'd made their way up the Mount of Olives on the other side of the Kidron Valley. They asked these questions that we've talked about over and over. When will this take place? And secondarily, what will be the signs of the fulfillment that is imminent. So we, we, we've been addressing Jesus' answer to the, to the uh, second question. They wanted to know, you know, when when are these things going to take place, and what are those signs of them? That's the answer. The question we've been answering: What are the signs of these things? And we've seen how Jesus foresaw certain things that his, history bears out that he was accurate. He was right. He saw that there would be false messiahs in Christ. There would be the prevalence of wars and threats of war, and earthquakes and famine. All of those things happened just as Christ said they would. We've looked at the history that that preceded the destruction of the temple. And we saw that all those things happened just as Jesus said they did. But Jesus also told the disciples, which is what we focused on last week, that it wouldn't just be international trouble That they could anticipate as the, as they're awaiting the destruction of the temple. He told them that there would be things that they themselves could also anticipate. Do you remember that? He told them they could uh, anticipate arrests and beatings and interrogations, even betrayals by their own families. Again, all these things took place. All you have to do is read the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, and you'll see it clearly that every single one of those things took place. 11 of the 12 apostles, when you replace uh, Judas with Paul, 11 of the 12 apostles were martyred for their testimony of Christ, and this all happened before AD 70. It was only John, the apostle John, who died of old age, and even he, as you'll remember, was exiled to the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. Um, in fact, if you want a little trivia, the Romans actually tried to execute John according to tradition. The, uh, the, ex- the Romans tried to execute John by boiling him in oil, one of their favorite methods, but he would not die. It basically turned into a spa treatment for him. And, um, and so they, they pulled him out and sent him to Patmos instead. And Jesus said this, this is important, we've referenced it both weeks before. Jesus said this, that puts everything in sharp focus of the things we're talking about. Verse 30, which we haven't gotten to yet, but it bears looking at before we get there. Jesus said, truly I say to you that this generation will not pass away when, until all these things take place. Now observing how these things were fulfilled within the timeline that Jesus set corrects those who looked at this, at this passage and only see a future fulfillment of Christ's words up until this point. We stopped last week at verse 13 and, and there's people that look at this and all they see is something that is coming and they try to discern how these signs are being played out in the, in the national and international news and, and that, that That viewpoint has a name. We said it last week. It's premillennial dispensationalism. And there are things that premillennial dispensationalism gets right that I'm in agreement with, like the return of Christ, the glorious return of Christ, the resurrection and the judgment of both the righteous and the wicked to either life or damnation at the end of the age. But if we stick to the context of this Passage. Nothing we've read so far seems to be alluding to those future realities. He's talking about something that will happen imminently and even given the signs of, of it's taking place. Now, instead, it seems that what Jesus said and what his disciples heard concerns something more immediate to their lifetimes, as I just said, which is the passing away, we've said this over and over, of the old covenant, the absolute. You know, abrupt cataclysmic end of the old covenant and the inauguration, the ushering in of the new and better one. And so after the resurrection of Christ, there was a time of overlap for about 40 years while both covenants were functioning at the same time. But once Jesus ended the old covenant, he ended it. It was over. It's not going to be returned. It's not going to be, you know, put back in place. So carefully examining what we've read so far, it seems that Jesus answered what? The second question first, right? Because he said, what will be the signs that all these things are about to take place? Um, verse 14, where we began today, that Terry read us, is Jesus' explicit answer to their first question. What was the first question? When will these things be? And this is what... Jesus answers. His answer is sure. His answer is confident. He says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. You notice that's kind of in parentheses. It's a parenthetical statement. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, you may not be at all, and it's okay, but you may not be at all familiar with this reference, the abomination of desolation. But it may sound completely cryptic to you, but it actually comes from, a, from the book of Daniel, the Old Testament prophetic book of Daniel, and it is mentioned, this concept of the abomination of desolation is mentioned four separate times in the book of Daniel. And in that book, it seems to refer, refer, and there's difference of opinion on this, but it seems to refer when it's used to two different historical events, though they are both extremely similar. It seems like the first historical event was a foreshadowing of the second uh, historical event. The first event, prophesied by Daniel, he, he refers to it as it's similar in language, not exactly but he says it's the, trans, it's the transgression that makes desolate in the ESV. And he also speaks of a time that on the wing of abominations there shall come one who makes desolate. Well, what is that all about? Well, I believe it refers to a time about 170 years before Christ. When, after the Greek Empire had kind of crumbled into separate entities, the four different entities, that the Seleucid uh, ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, again, if you don't, if you don't understand Greek, that may not mean anything to you. He literally, his name literally meant, this is the blasphemous nature of this man, it literally meant God manifest. He was saying, when you're looking at me, you're looking at God. And so, uh, because he was the ruler over Judea, he went into the temple and desecrated it. That is an understatement if there ever was one. Antiochus slaughtered forty thousand Jews and plundered the temple. He just stole anything of any value that was left in the temple. He sacrificed the pig, and as you know um, Jews find uh, you know uh, pigs unclean and so he took a, a pig and sacrificed it on the altar and just to absolutely intentionally defile the temple he sprinkled its broth all over the temple so that everything would be defiled forced the priest to eat the flesh of the pig um, and so he was literally defiling it. One of the things he did was there was a lamp in the in the temple that God had said back in the law that you, this lamp is to never go out. He immediately extinguished extinguished the lamp so that so that he could defy God. Now this led to a three decades long. Revolt uh, led by some men called the Maccabees. You can actually read this in the Apocrypha in the book of 1st and 2nd Maccabees. And, and it resulted in Jewish independence from their Seleucid overlords. And Antiochus Epiphanes himself died in 164 from a divinely inflicted and ultimately fatal disease. God does not wink at such things. But the second reference, the, or the other two references, In Daniel seem to point to the exact same thing that Jesus is referring to in Scripture, which will transpire in AD 70. And both of those references, the last two references in Daniel, specifically uh, uh, mention the abomination that makes desolate. Now, Jesus calls it the abomination of desolation. Why does this term apply to the destruction of the temple that Jesus is prophesying? An abomination is defined as an object of hatred or disgust. It's something that causes revulsion. There, there. You know, I don't know if anybody in here has a sensitive gag reflex, Gabriel. But um, if if uh, um, there are times when you can. Get that one scent, that one smell, that one sight, and you know what happens, you have that little reaction. This is an abomination. It, it's a thing that kind of, one of my favorite, uh, you know, but, but offensive, uh, back when the America's Funny Home videos, I say it's offensive because I'm a husband, there's a, there's a, a video of a, of a man who's trying to change his newborn baby's diaper. And he is doing everything he can to keep his lunch down, and while he's, yeah, there you go, and um, and while while he's doing that, his wife, his helpmate that the Lord has given him, is standing in the doorway filming him and laughing hysterically. That's offensive, ladies. But that's an abomination. It's something that causes that revulsion, that that reaction to it. It's, an, it's a, It can be an idolatrous offense or an affront to the true worship of God. Desolation, on the other hand, it alludes to abandonment. Something that has been emptied out or forsaken or removed from its intended use. I don't know if you remember in the book of 1 Samuel, in the early chapters, when... Um, Eli's sons, who's the priest, the high priest, his sons had displeased the Lord, so the Lord put them both to death in battle. This caused the, the high priest Eli to have a heart attack and die because of the of the loss of his sons. And one of the son's daughters has a baby, um, and at that time, and she names the baby because this is all happening as this baby's being born and she's dying while she's giving birth to the baby. And she says, she says that, that name the baby Ichabod. Now, you may not know anything about Ichabod outside of the, the legend of Sleepy Hollow. But that word Ichabod means this, the glory has departed. In other words, God was occupying the, the Jewish nation, and now he has abandoned it. It's gone. The glory has left. And the same concept applies to this use of the word desolation. Now, Jesus points, by using this terminology, uh, this abomination of desolation, Jesus points to the atrocities of Antiochus, I believe, as a descriptive analogy of what's coming. He's saying, remember what happened, you know, 240 years ago? Well, get ready. It's about to happen again. He also reminds them of what Daniel predicted as a way of ratifying the truthfulness of his own prophecy. He says, Daniel saw it. It happened. He saw something else. It's about to happen. And this is what he meant, I believe, by that, that parenthetical statement, let the reader understand. He's saying, guys, to understand what's coming, all you have to do is open the book of Daniel. And his words showed that connection to Daniel. Now Matthew records the words of Christ before his own version of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. He gives the words of Jesus in the closing verses of, of Matthew 23 as this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. That's an abomination, isn't it? How often would I have gathered you as, as your children as uh, together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Now watch, pay close attention to verse 38. See your house, meaning the temple, is left to you desolate. In the end of verse 14, Jesus, of Mark 13, Jesus begins to give a warning. When you see this abomination of desolation, standing where it ought not be, Matthew adds this phrase, standing in the holy place, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, before we get into the warning, what does he mean by where it ought not be or standing in the holy place? Well, there are many abominations history is rife with them many abominations that took place in the temple before their its destruction even there were many abominations not committed just by the gentiles and the romans but by the jews themselves and those certainly may be included in what jesus is talking about about the you know the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not be or or in the holy place um But I think this verse mostly refers to the Roman occupation and the violent entry that they made into the temple complex. Now, we cannot, I'm convinced of this, unless we are immersed in first century Jewish history, we can't fully understand or appreciate how that first century Jew would have viewed the trampling of those holy courts by Gentile feet. We don't have a perspective on what that would have done to them emotionally. It it would be like you watching North Koreans, you know, taking over the White House or the Capitol or you would have the same reaction to that. And, and, but, but it was, there was more to it than just a, a government conquest. They were seeing uh, you know, the, the symbol of their religious. Not only, what if the North Koreans not only took over the White House and the Capitol, what if they came here and shut all this down? That's how you'd feel. You'd be like, what is going on here? But there was more that that was offensive and abominable to them. It was the lifting up of these blasphemous Roman standards, these banners and flags, that bore Caesar's image right in the holy place of God, the holiest of holies. Caesar's image was replacing the glory of God. And especially this would have been offensive in the light of what happened with Antiochus just uh, 240 years prior to this moment. But unlike, and this is really important, listen to me carefully, especially if you're still holding to a premillennial dispensational perspective, unlike what happened after Antiochus' many offenses, Jesus' prediction for eighty seventy 70 leaves absolutely no room for a future cleansing, a future regi- uh, restoration, a future rebuilding of the temple. There's nothing in his words that indicates that's something we can look forward to. He only promises the temple's complete dismantling, not one stone left upon another, down to its very foundations, left defiled and left desolate. Now, in preparation for this imminent catastrophic event, Jesus says these words, "...let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains." Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. What is Jesus saying About this, Is he talking about, as we've said over and over, some long-term future event? Or is he talking about something that is going to happen in their lifetimes? His words indicate that great haste, speed, will be required by all those who would see their lives spared from the coming wrath. He points to the thorny condition of those days and encourages them to even pray for better conditions to, to enable them to escape more easily. And all these words, again for the third week in a row, proved to be divinely inspired. The suddenness of their evacuation was warranted because the Roman hordes descended upon the city. When they did that, there were only a few brief periods where escape was even possible. By the end of the siege, the Romans literally built a wall of soldiers around the entire city so no one could escape. There was no place left open for you to slip through the cracks. And so... You know, there was only these few moments in the, in the siege of, of Jerusalem where, you know, somebody could get out and escape with their life. And those who hesitated, those who delayed their departure inevitably died a grisly death. And so Jesus counseled them, move fast. Get moving. Don't even go back to collect your, you know, your photo albums, your, you know, your financial records. Just leave. Just go. Leave it all behind. Leave everything behind. Don't turn back. They were to believe these warnings and be steadfast in their journey for the safety of their families and the preservation of their own lives. Now, uh, in a moment we're going to talk about what those days of the overthrow of Jerusalem were actually like. But there's an interesting fact that has been uh, not only testimony of people that are were contemporaries like Josephus, Josephus and Eusebius and people like that, but there's an interesting fact of the overthrow of Jerusalem that has been affirmed by everything, every record that we have, that there is no record of any Christians dying in those days. Why? Because they listened to the word of Christ. They remembered what he had said almost 40 years prior They took heed of those things, and they fled to the mountains when they saw these things beginning to happen. So listen to me, and and you apply this to your own life. Trusting in the word of the Lord kept them alive. In fact... History records that believers in the city withdrew to the village of Perea, and Perea is east of the Sea of Galilee, so some distance from uh, the, the southern portion where Ju- uh, Judea and Jerusalem were, where the ravages of the Roman aggression was so violent and so hostile, um, and they escaped, and they escaped with their lives. And what? let's pause for a second, instead of just going through a history lesson, and think of what a... Amazing reminder this is of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, we're, we're told in the, in the book of 2 Corinthians that now, it, today is the day of salvation. This is the moment. And and a lot of times, especially when we're young, young people, we'll, we'll think, you know, well, I've got time, and I want to. There's some things I want to do. I want to have a little fun first. But you need to, you need to flee to safety, to the rock, to Christ. You need to go now. You need to leave everything behind you. Let it drop on the ground and move forward. Move to Christ. Embrace Christ. Go to Christ. You will never live to regret it. But if you don't run to Christ, you will die to regret it. Though the words of Jesus in Mark 13 are prophecies of an actual historical event that is now in our past, we have to realize there is a day of wrath that is coming on the whole world. Or maybe we'll face that moment of wrath at our own deaths. But will we bother trying to preserve the shiny things of this life, or will we flee with haste? to the rock Jesus Christ and live. These are questions we all have to answer. But he goes on, he says, woe to those who are pregnant and nursing. He says they're at a a particular disadvantage as they would have to move quickly. He encourages them to pray that that their flight wouldn't happen under winter conditions as the primitive roads would often be impassable with mud and which would have certainly slowed them down, made them pray for the Romans, or not pray P-R-A-Y, but P-R-E-Y for the Romans. And so, connecting the thought I said earlier, it, as you flee from God's wrath, clinging to God's salvation, what are the obstacles that slow down your journey? What are the things that you are still holding to that keep you from being Truly saved. What are you nursing? And I'm not speaking only to pregnant women. What are you nursing, men and women? Are you nursing old habits? Are you nursing old grudges? Are you nursing old traumas? Are you nursing, you know, things that, that um you could be healed of, but you still find your identity in those things? What are the seasons of life that make your journey more difficult? The seasons of fear, the seasons of anxiety, the seasons of depression or anger. We must not be found nursing anything, not giving life to the things that will ultimately result in our spiritual death. We have to pray that through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, the journey to heaven will not occur in seasons that slow us down, but that we would know and learn how to, whatever it takes, cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for us. Verse 19 gives a description, a prediction, as it were, of the actual Fall of Jerusalem. And listen to the category in verse 19 of what, how Jesus puts this, how he categorizes this moment. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now, the actual fall of Jerusalem, Jesus is not speaking in hyperbole here. It was a catastrophe unlike the world has ever seen, even to this day. Now, I realize that that is that may be... Um, troubling for you to hear because especially if you hold to a futuristic view of this verse you think things are just getting worse and worse and more terrible and you know things like like will make the overthrow of jerusalem look like nothing you may even look historically and say well what about the holocaust what about uh, slavery what about all those things well listen there have been wars in which numerically more people died. But there has never before or since, if you do a deep dive like I did this week into the history of this event, there's never been a, 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 a time before or since that where such atrocities were committed in such diverse and hideous ways. Also, while greater numbers may have perished in those conflicts, the number of Jews lost in such a short amount of time sets the overthrow of Jerusalem in a category all by itself. May I prove that to you? Although the final Jewish result, revolt rather against Rome... Uh, it, it was, it, it happened, uh, or officially began in 8066. So we're talking about 8070. It actually began in 8066. The actual siege of the capital took place between April and September of 8070, so about six months. And in those months, there were atrocities committed and, and occurred that would have made Hitler blush. In 8066, the city was in complete Chaos. It's absolute chaos. There was infighting. This was not the Romans against the Jews. This was the Jews against the Jews. And warring factions among the Jews fought tooth and nail for control of the city, control of the temple. And in one instance, the Zealots—you may not be familiar with that that party—but the the Zealots, Jesus had a man in his in his disciples named Simon the Zealot. These were the like these were the red-blooded, gun-toting, you know, Maga uh, Jews that were ready to overthrow the government at any point. And the zealots, in this moment in 866, they tortured and killed nearly 12,000 of the city's nobles and leading citizens. Those who tried to escape their wrath had their throats slit, and soon piles of bodies were left in the streets. They were, when it got too much, they started throwing them over the wall, so the whole city of Jerusalem was uh, surrounded by a revulsion, a, a, an abomination, a, a, a scent that would make you sick just to be in the city. When Titus, the Roman general, arrived to quell these acts of madness and rebellion... The jam-packed city was placed under siege. And Titus sent Josephus. We've been talking about Josephus. He was a historian. He was a Jew who um, who had helped the Romans to try to broker peace and things like that. There's more to the story, but just for time's sake, that gives you enough. And so Titus would send Josephus to the walls to repeatedly offer the Jews clemency. Say, hey, throw down your arms, give up, and you'll all live. But come out of the city. And the Jews obviously refused. And so to hasten their surrender, Titus burned all of their granaries, all the food that they had stored up, he just set it on fire. And he polluted their water supply. And the famine that resulted was by many accounts the worst part of the siege. What I mean by that is the famine was so bad that by the time Romans were putting people to death, they welcomed the death. People sold their homes, all of their possessions, and then In sequence, they sold their children just so that they could survive, have something to survive. Widespread, widespread cannibalism soon followed in the city. Those that were unwilling to eat human flesh were reduced, and let me say I'm sorry before I tell you this, but they were reduced to scavenging for food from the public sewers. They began eating animal and bird dung just to stay alive to have some nutrients. And as you can imagine... This added to the death toll in the city tremendously. Josephus talks about before the Romans even got into the city, whole houses were filled with dead bodies. All the uh, the streets were lined with dead bodies. And many tried to escape the desperate conditions of the cities. And when they did, the city, and when they did, they would be captured by the Romans and they would be crucified right outside the walls in full view of the entire city. In order to strike fear into the Jewish hearts, the Romans would crucify up to 500 Jews a day. Sometimes so many people were in line to be crucified, they ran out of crosses. There are stories of, of the Romans having a, a man or a woman just nailed up, and because they needed the cross, they would rip them down, throw them in the ditch, throw them in the road, let them die, so they could put somebody else up on the cross. And finally... The wall of the city was breached and the temple along with the houses were set on fire. The Romans went through and were so shocked to see the condition of the people find so many dead from starvation that they that they were actually moved. And yet, under orders from Titus, they showed absolutely no quarter, no mercy to the survivors. They Spared no survivors, they murdered them indiscriminately, it didn't matter if you were a man, a woman, a little boy, a little girl, an infant baby, they put you to death. The last 100,000, a third of the population of our own city tried to escape, every one of them was captured by the Romans and sold into slavery, never to be heard from again. So in all, let me, let me kind of lean into this. Worst, you know, time in human history since the creation of the world, as Jesus says. In all, 1.1 million people were killed in six short months, and this is this is um, not over all of Europe like the Holocaust. This is in one city. By comparison, the Nazis killed several more. They killed 6 million Jews, but they did that between 1933 and 1945 in 12 months. The Romans killed 1.1 million in 6, I'm sorry, 12 years. The Romans killed 1.1 million in 6 months. And this comparison makes it plain why Jesus said, In those days there will be such tribulation as has not been seen from the beginning of the creation uh, that God created until now and there never will be. So the old covenant, as I've been telling you, did not just come to an end. It didn't, you know, breathe out a death rattle and whimper to its end. It came down with a dramatic and cataclysmic end. And this wasn't just... Some cruel judgment that, that, uh, you know, they, Jesus was being unfair with them. He had promised them all these things. i said this in the first week. If you go to Deuteronomy 28, you will see what God promises. He promises starvation and cannibalism and, and, um, you know, uh, slavery and all of these things that actually happened. With, these were the, these were the covenant curses for not keeping the covenant. But what did Christ do? He replaced it with a better covenant, an enduring covenant that's not based on my failure to be able to keep his law. Mark 12:31 I'm sorry, 1321, rather. He says, "And if anyone says to you, "Look, here is the Christ," or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if, if possible, even the elect." Now, another interesting fact is that Jesus, again, remember he did this at the beginning of the chapter, he again predicted the emergence of false Christs and false prophets. And, again, as with every point, historians verify that this... It happened as well. Many were rising in those days, predicting imminent deliverance. They say, "Hey, I know it's bad, but I have a word from the Lord that this is all going to get better. We're all, you know, the the armies of the world are going to come to our rescue, and it's going to be a quick restoration of Jewish dominance in the region." And, and they were saying that over and over. But having rejected Christ, they imagined the rise of their Messiah, but not one like Jesus was, the one entirely defined by his military might, one who would exact vengeance on the Romans. And this has always been the tendency of unrepentant humanity. In Jeremiah's time, way back in the Old Testament, many false prophets rose and they proclaimed to the people, hey, you're not going to be exiled to Babylon. Je- Jeremiah doesn't know what he's talking about. He's a liar. Don't listen to him. What happened? God had clearly said that they would be exiled to Babylon, and they were. The distinctive mark, if you'll notice here, of false Christs and false prophets is the performing of signs and wonders, which is why we should be very, very, very infin- infinitely careful when someone boasts of their miraculous power instead of boasting in the cross of Christ. Jesus concludes this portion by assuring the disciples By, uh, and, and those who have asked him the question saying, but he says this, he says, but be on guard. I have told you these things beforehand. I love that we serve a risen savior who does not leave us in the dark. Amen. He tells us both what to expect from this world. So if we're reading his word, we're not shocked when it happens. But he also tells us, much more importantly, what to expect from himself in response to what we can expect from the world. There's no better passage to affirm this than John 16, 33. I have said these things to me, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Why, Jesus? Because in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. Take heart, church. Take heart. Jesus overcame the world. Jesus goes before us. Jesus governs everything that befalls us. Jesus never in the scriptures ever promises you a life that is free from trouble. But what he does do is he promises to sustain you through it. He tells us of trouble beforehand, and that doesn't mean that we have a play by play concerning the next events of human history. Believing that, believing that Jesus is giving us a play by play has led to the most egregious misinterpretations of our present passage by people who've tried to see every word of this passage as signs of things to come in the future, and without fail, every single one of them have been wrong, every single one of them, without exception. But by seeing it the correct way, as reflecting God's faithful stewardship over human history and His redemptive covenant, we learn to trust Him with everything that in our existence is mysterious, everything that's scary, everything that we'll face in our own lifetimes that that is hard and troubling and, and, and filled with tribulation, Everything that we need to know, we know because God has told us beforehand. For example, the word of God tells us that we have, or that God has provided a savior so that we might escape the coming wrath. We know that we will suffer in this life as we just read, but that he will be faithful to us. We know that we have an ever-present help in every time of our need. So may all of our temples of self-managed religion fall. Let not one stone be left on another. May we trust in the Lord who's sovereign over all of history. May we trust him to prepare us, to shield us, to sustain us, to preserve us for all that is to come, both in our Limited lifetimes and in the 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 cosmic realities of the future, may we live to his glory obeying His word to the end of our days. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would faithfully apply what we've heard today. God, I pray for everyone in this room that is delaying their escape to you, Lord. God, I pray that they would make haste, that they would move quickly, Lord, to come to you, recognizing that today is the day of salvation, that you are the only promise to escape the coming wrath. Lord, I thank you that... Um, Lord, you love us, and you tell us beforehand. You don't leave us alone. You have left the temple in Jerusalem desolate, but you fill your church, Lord God. And you let us know that that in this life, that that suffering, that persecution, that trouble and tribulation are part of what you've called us to. So that through our lives of of perseverance in the face of of trouble, God, we bring glory to you. And we, you allow those things, God, to sanctify us, to to change from one degree of glory to the next, to reflect who you are, God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just continue to work in us. God, I pray for those this morning who are facing specific troubles, health issues. Lord, I pray for the brother that told me of a health issue. And Lord, I pray that you would bring healing to his body. I pray that you would just heal him, God, and let let every hint of the things that he has been struggling with for some time now be gone, be removed from his body, Lord. God, I pray for anyone else in that condition, anybody that's in in severe relational distress or severe, uh, God, financial problems, Lord, I pray that you would show them your goodness and how you sustain them, even when it doesn't make sense, and certainly not when it's fun. So, Lord, we thank you for that. And, Lord, as a church united with one voice, we say we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. If I could have my communion helpers come forward. Um, We are about to receive the Lord's Supper. And, um, man... We've talked so much about covenant in the last three weeks. This is it. This is, Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And oh my goodness, I can't tell you how grateful you should be for that. That you are not under the conditions, the requirements, the demands of the old covenant. You have been brought into his kingdom by the grace of faith and, and he is working in you. God is working in you to do and to will His good pleasure. And this is, this is the sign of that covenant that we are enjoying right now. So, you know, come joyfully, come joyfully and receive the elements and, and, and take them with joy. Hopefully if I, you know, invited you over to my house for supper, you wouldn't come somber. You would if I was cooking. If Ginger was cooking, you'd be fine. But you wouldn't come somber, you'd come joyful. And so come joyful and receive this and receive it in faith. And thank God for what it not only symbolized, but what it does. That it is is an ordinary means of grace and God is connecting you. The Holy Spirit is connecting you to the risen body of Christ through it. So you can come forward and receive these elements and then take them back to your seat. And we'll take them together in just a moment. So Paul writes for us. In 1 Corinthians, these words that are becoming so familiar to us. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now, if you are in the new covenant, take a moment and give thanks to God for what he's done in you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for rescuing us, Lord God, from the bondage to the law, God, so that we may obey your law with a heart of joy and gladness and love instead of a, a, a trembling fear as we stand before your holiness, God. Thank you that you have made us accepted in the beloved. Thank you that you have fellowshiped, God, allowed us to fellowship with your sufferings and and to know the power of your resurrection and so we thank you for all this God help us to be found faithful God as we as we continue to follow you and live for you and obey you we thank you for all of this in Jesus name amen if you would place your hands in a receiving position as i read this benediction over you oh the depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of god how unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or what has been given, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.